So, like I said, as we continue our study here uh, through the book of Titus, we get to our fifth part. Now, we've still got a few weeks left, but uh, and so we'll pick up in verse 11 of chapter 2, and it should be there on the top of your handout. And so, as Paul has given this list in the first few verses of chapter 2, uh, there was a list, and it was to different people, right? He, he said, you know, to the older uh, gentlemen, to the older ladies, to the younger group. And so he gave them instructions of things that they should do. And we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. And then we get to chapter 11, and he transitions. And so in verse, uh, sorry, cha- uh, verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Now, we've seen that before in chapter 2, and then, or rather in chapter 1, and then we'll revisit that here in a little while. So he says to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so, again, Paul is encouraging Titus. So they've planted this church, and at the beginning, he says uh, in chapter 1, you said, he he said, hey, I've left you behind in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put into order. And so he's explaining to Titus the things that should be and how they should be and what that should look like. And so we get to verse 11 of chapter 2 after he's given this list of instructions. And then he says four, right? He says four, here's what you should do, and here's why, which is the four, the transition there. Here's why you should do it. He said the grace has appeared. And so Paul tells us how it's possible to live the life that he explains in verses 1 through 10. You see, the list that Paul gives in the previous verses puts very high expectations on the believer. It puts very high expectations on the believer. You see, when God calls us, and as we talk about grace tonight, and we'll talk about the, you know, the two sides of grace, when God calls us, He says in, in verses 1 through 10, as He's talking about in chapter 2, He says, hey, here's how you should act. These are the ways that you should act. This is what your attitude and your behavior should look like. So in verse 7, for instance, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Now, that's pretty high standard, I would say, right? That you would be the model of all good works. So, you know, if we, we said, hey, you are the ambassador, you're the representative for Michael Memorial, and your life is going to be under scrutiny, and that everything you do and say is going to be a model for those that God is drawing into Michael Memorial Baptist Church, well, what would you say to that? You know, some of you kind of had a little bit of a, hey, wait a minute, you know, look to your face and you know, are you sure that, you, but in reality, that's the truth for all of us. But when we talk about being a model, we say, hey, you're the example, you're the standard. And so Paul says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good work. So in everything that you do, to be a good model. You see, it was a very high standard, but it was a standard nonetheless. It was a standard nonetheless. And so on the one hand, we can't say and carry the weight of, hey, my actions, they're the standard. And if I fail or if I succeed, well, then I am the representative of that. There's some extra copies, and if you want to just raise your hand, 
If you didn't get a copy of the handout, uh, we got some extra copies here. And so we think about the standard. We say, hey, well, if I'm the standard and I fail, well, then what does that say about the standard, right? Or if we say, hey, I got lucky or I made the right decision and I succeeded and I'm the standard, well, then all of a sudden, then I may feel puffed up or I may feel, you know, arrogant about what I had done. And so on the one hand, we've got this that we say, well, if I'm going to uphold the standard, then I'm not the standard. But then on the other hand, we can't say, well, I'm not the standard, so it doesn't matter what I do. Nobody's really watching me or everybody knows, you know, you hear, oh, everybody sins, pastor, right? And so I'm not the standard, so I get to do whatever I want. And so Paul says, here's this list of things, and then here's how you do it. So we got this standard that God wants us to achieve, and in some ways we say, well, I can't achieve that standard, so it's so unattainable for me, I'm just going to dismiss that and not attempt to achieve that. Well, the word for training that Paul uses here, very fascinating, it's the word for discipline. Now, we don't like discipline. We don't like as children, children hate to be disciplined. They don't like to be grounded or in timeout or whatever. They, no one likes discipline. And when we think about discipline, what do we think about? <clears throat> we think about trouble, right? We think that I'm in trouble, I've been disciplined. But there's also the discipline side that is a good thing, that you would discipline yourself to do good things, right? I mean, and the joke's always, well, you know, I could, you know, just sit and eat donuts for every meal, and that's a terrible discipline. Well, if you want to achieve anything, don't you have to discipline yourself? Right? If you say, well, I want, to be, I want to be the manager one day. Well, don't you have to have the discipline to show up every day on time as the employee? Don't you have the discipline to do your job as the employee? Don't you have to do the discipline to excel in, in achieving that promotion, right, to become the manager? If you say, hey, I want, to, I want to get in shape, what do you have to have? Discipline. Those aren't necessarily bad things. And so we've kind of run from that word discipline. And Paul's using that word. He says, bringing salvation for all people, training or disciplining us to renounce ungodliness. Now, as we think about this word discipline, well, we think about the fact that grace came, he, Paul says, for grace of God has appeared, that grace came through the person of Jesus. Pastor Tony talked about this Sunday morning. Grace came through the person of Jesus, and Jesus disciplines us to be who God created us to be. In other words, He shows us the standard of who God is, right? Right? And so as Jesus came and He revealed, He manifested, we'll see that a little bit later, He manifested God the Father, and in the manifestation or the revealing of who God is, what Jesus is, is He gave us the standard or He disciplined us to be who God created us to be. How did He do that? Because he says, you've heard it, many, many times you heard in the New, you've seen in the New Testament, Jesus said, you've heard it said before, but I say unto you. And so what Jesus came and said is you don't just abide by the law, right, that there's something greater than the law. And his name is Jesus, right? And so Jesus came for that reason. And so the issue that most people run into, and I'll be honest with you, uh, it was a great learning curve for myself, is that most people don't properly understand Grace. Grace is a very large topic, and it's very difficult, I would say, to understand. And here's why. Because on the one hand, you have those who don't believe that grace is really true. You see, that's one of the things that makes the gospel so attractive is that grace is paramount in the gospel. And 
So to believe that God loves me in spite of who I am and that God would save me regardless of what I've done doesn't make any sense at all. You see, everything in our lives is based on performance. Remember what I said earlier. If you show up on time and you're a good employee, then you get promoted. Remember I said that? And so that's how the world works. In every one of our jobs and vocations, we're rewarded based on performance. You have a performance appraisal or you have a a merit-based raise based on what you've done or what you have accomplished. And that's how the world works. If you are a good athlete and you progress in athletics, guess what? You're going to be offered scholarships and contracts because everything is based upon performance. And our only context is each other. And so we say, hey, well, you know, Brad did good or Steve did good. And so because of that, if I do what they did, then I'll achieve what they achieve. And so we relate everything in human terms to other humans because it's all we understand. And so we say, well, if everything is around me is based on performance, then everything above me has to be based on performance because it's our only realm of understanding. Well, this is where legalism comes in. So where the Pharisees came out and they said, hey, well, look, you you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't heal on the Sabbath. You can't do, you know, Jesus, you know, ran into all those types of issues that they came up with. And so they said, well, here's what legalism looks like. And, you know, I've had, unfortunately, slash fortunately, a lot of experience with legalism is that, well, if you do, you get. And if you do the right thing, God rewards you. And if you don't do the right thing, well, then God's disappointed in you. And so verses like Ephesians chapter 2 that says that you're not saved by works, that you're saved by grace and by faith in Jesus Christ, it takes a little while to unwind all of that in your heart and mind. And so you have one side that says, well, how can grace be true when everything is performance-based? When then on the other side, you have people who say, wait a minute, grace I can do whatever I want, and and there's no repercussions for that, and that God absolutely loves me regardless of what I do. So I can just act a fool and do anything that I want, and I can get free grace. I'm in for that. I mean, who wouldn't be, right? And so then you have the other side where the free grace group, if you will, where you can do whatever you want with no regard to obedience, and God will give you a free pass for your sin. Uh, It may sound foreign to you, but there is a huge group of people who believe that. I personally know lots of people who believe that. They don't believe that sanctification takes place through obedience. They believe that sanctification takes place essentially through osmosis, that God just sanctifies you and you can do whatever you want to do. I personally know people who believe that. You see, grace does not mean that we get to do, that whatever we do doesn't matter, that we get to do whatever we want to do and that it doesn't matter. That is not what grace means. Jesus didn't come down and die on the cross for us to just to get to do what we wanted to do. That is not what grace is. Paul is very clear, and and hopefully this will help you to get clarity on the order of this, because this is very specific. But Paul is very clear as to the order of grace versus works. And there's a lot of other places in Scripture that teach this, but this is a very good place that teaches as well. This is what Paul says. He says that grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all. That's what he said. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we're saved by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. So Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. Now, at this point, nobody's done anything. 
right? Jesus appears according to the, the vernacular here, and in his appearance, he brought, he made available salvation for all people. And then it is through the salvation that we are trained in godliness. So you see the, the order of secession there that you have salvation that's available. So there's salvation, then there's training in godliness. And so godliness then, we would say, is a result of our salvation. Godliness is a result of our salvation. It is not the cause of our salvation. That not if I become, you know, through behavioral modification, if I become more like Christians, then that makes me godly. It's not, it's not a result of it. It is a result of it, rather. It's not that I'm earning. It's not that I caused godliness to happen in my life. You see, Jesus, when he came, he provided this grace because without grace, you and I have no hope. And so this grace made that salvation available for us. And so, again, because we have salvation, godliness, and we'll unpack that in a minute, is a result of the salvation that we have received. And so we would say then that it is the grace that Jesus provides then that is the training ground for godliness. That the grace that God provides is the training ground. Think about it this way. If God came down through Jesus, if he incarnated through Jesus and he said, here's the standard. Everybody gets one shot at this. And if you make a mistake, you're out. You can't make any mistakes. Now, I've shown you exactly how to do this, and this is how you should act, and this is how you should live, and this is the things that you should do. You know exactly what you should do, but if you fail, you're out. Imagine the pressure of that, right? It's just like the parent that's on the sidelines. It's, you know, parent coaching from the stands, and when their kid strikes out who's, you know, six years old, you know, they're falling out on the ground, passing out because their kid's not successful. And you're like, hey, chill out. They're only six, right? You know, they're going to fail. And so it's the same way, you know, if God, if, if through Jesus, Jesus said, hey, here's the standard. But if you mess this up, you're out. Imagine the fear-based attempts that people would have in following Jesus. How would there be any love involved in that? Whereas what Jesus said is, I'm the standard. I'm the standard, and I know that every one of you are going to fail to meet the standard. But even while you failed, I still loved you. And that I have grace that's sufficient for all of your failures, and I just want you to succeed. And no matter how many times it takes, I want you to know that I love you, and I'm going to receive your success because I know you're going to succeed because I'm going to guarantee it, and it'll take all the attempts that you need. Now imagine if you told your kid, listen, it doesn't matter if you strike out. I just want you to give your best. I just want you to get out there and swing that bat. And I know that one day you're going to hit that ball. And imagine the feel, the change in that attitude of the child approaching that, or as the child of God we would relate then, as we approach to attempt to be trained in godliness. You see the difference there? You see, grace doesn't emphasize what we must do for God but it emphasizes what God has done for us, so it takes all the pressure off, right? We don't say, now, look, i got to accomplish this, because if I don't finish this, well, then I'm not going to spend eternity with God. No, that's, that's not what grace says. Whereas legalism says what we do is who we are, the gospel declares that being righteous is God's gift to us. And so, God's gift through grace then says that grace is who we are, 
and because of who we are that leads to what we do. So we can say, hey, it's no problem. I'm free to fail because I'm trying. I'm putting forth the effort. Grace is unmerited favor, that you get favor before you succeed. And so that's what Paul is saying. Your salvation came, and that salvation, that grace through salvation is what trains us, and, and we'll unpack this, to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions. So our behavior then should match who we are. If we have been saved by grace, then our behavior will reflect that. That we will, we will live lives of grace, just like with forgiveness. Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you're not going to be forgiven. Well, if you've been given grace, you should dispense grace, right? That you should show grace to those that are around you because you and I have been shown grace. Well, how does this work? How do we get to that point in our lives? Well, Paul gives us some good examples here. And so the way that we'll look at it tonight, a couple different ways. Number one, the appearance of grace has changed your perception of you. The appearance of grace has changed your perception of you. When Jesus appeared, when grace was revealed in your life, it changed how you saw yourself. Now, let's look at both ways. First of all, maybe you thought you had it all together. Nobody comes to Jesus thinking they had it all together, by the way. Just want to let you know, but I'm just giving you the benefit of the doubt, all right? But you came to Jesus and you said, hey, listen, I got it all together just like the rich young ruler, and I want to add grace to my life. Well, when you encounter Jesus, everything changes. Every one of your testimonies is that way. If that's not your testimony, then you didn't encounter grace. And so what happens in our lives, when we encounter salvation, everything in our lives changes. And so if we show up and we think we've got it all together, when we encounter the holy God, Jesus Christ, what happens is we realize this, I don't have it all together. And so what grace reveals to me is that in spite of the fact that I don't have it all together, God still loves me, that God still chose me, that God still draws me to himself. And so my perception of who I am has changed. The other side of the coin, maybe, maybe you came to God and, and you said, I'm unworthy and there's no way a holy God could save someone like me. You have no idea what I've done. To which the grace of God would say, I still love you, Right? And so that changes our perception of the way that we see ourselves. So grace who came in the person of Jesus provided something that you didn't realize that you needed until you encountered him. You see, when you encountered grace, you, you received something for the first time in your life that you didn't even know you needed, right? You didn't know what grace was until you encountered grace, we were all seemingly content in our attempt to achieve salvation, whether we thought it was being a good person or whatever your theology was prior to encountering Jesus. But unknowingly, this theology, quote, if you will, destined us to be separated from God for eternity. This is what Paul writes in Romans 3. He says, now we know that whoever, or rather whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So if you thought, hey, I'm doing pretty good, well, you're wrong. Because no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Because the reality was you, me, and no one ever and no one in the future will ever be able to achieve perfection of the law. The law came to reveal our sinfulness. 
And so it changes, the reality of that changes the way I see myself. Then I become desperately in need of a Savior, right? And so the way that Paul describes it here is the way in which everyone has experienced. If you're in here tonight and you're saved, this is how you experience grace. It appeared. It appeared in your life. Well, has anything ever appeared in your life? You ever seen a ghost or anything? If you have, don't tell me. Uh, but when things appear, right, you, you hear sometimes people say, you know, I pulled out and, and it just, the car just appeared out of nowhere. Right, you hear, you, sometimes we use that kind of terminology. Well, it's the same way of, of the way that we understand it appeared, is that grace appeared in your life out of nowhere. Listen, you didn't see it coming. You weren't like six months before and you said, hey, I can't wait. In six months, I'm going to encounter Jesus. It's going to be awesome. I just can't wait for this to happen. That's not, way, that's not the way that that happened. I remember the night that I got saved. I thought I was saved. And grace intersected my life. And I realized for the first time that it was not works, that it was grace that saves a person. And it was, it was a grace that appeared to me. It's the same way. Every one of your testimonies is the same way. Is that in some shape, form, or fashion, God intersected your life. And it was at that moment you realized what salvation was. It appeared in your life. God manifested himself through Jesus, shining forth in the darkness of our sin and our falling nature. And what he did in your life and in mine is he made light available even when our darkness was overwhelming. And so what happened in your life is that God's grace didn't approach you. It appeared out of nowhere to rescue you. It didn't approach you. It didn't tap you on the shoulder and say, excuse me, sir, ma'am, um, I'm grace and I could change your life. Right? That's not how that happened. That when you encountered grace, it radically changed your perception of everything that you believe to be true about yourself. Through the intervention of grace, we were shown favor and we were granted sonship. And so whatever, you know, if you grew up and, you know, life was not good or if you grew up and life was great, it was nothing compared to the sonship that you received through salvation in Jesus Christ. The way that William Hendrickson says it is this. He said, God's grace is his active favor bestowing the greatest gift upon those who deserved the greatest punishment. You see, once you encounter grace, what you realize is, just like Isaiah said, is woe is me, right? That, that my sin, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that I've sinned against the holy God, that the creator God has created me, and in his crea- as his creation, I have sinned against the creator. But because of grace... Me, who deserves the greatest punishment, has been given the greatest gift. What did Paul say? Paul said that he was the chief of sinners. Arguably one of the the greatest Christians to ever live said of himself that I'm the chief of sinners, that I'm crucified with Christ and not I, but Christ who lives within me. It's because Paul understood the reality of what grace was because he understood the reality and the gravity of his own sin. You see, the, the reality of grace in our lives, because of that, we can no longer live to the desires of the flesh. You see, for the, gruce, the, the free grace group that says, hey, I can do whatever I want, you don't understand grace. 
You don't understand the price that was paid for you to have grace. And so this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so what Paul is saying here is that once you encounter grace, what you do is you surrender your life, you surrender your fleshly desires. That's what he says here. What was it? Training us to renounce ungodliness. We trade those. We trade those worldly passions for the receiving of eternal life through Jesus because of this reality. And so, Biblical grace, then, makes us intolerant of evil in our lives. You know, so in Romans chapter 6, you know, Paul is laying all this out, and so he says, so should you sin more? Because he says, where there's uh, sin, grace will abound, right? And so he says, so then should you sin more, Rome, so that God's grace would be more? And he says, certainly not. Emphatically, there's an exclamation mark there in Romans 6. He says, certainly not, that we would not abuse grace, but that we would be intolerant to the evil because of grace. So we must work. We must work simultaneously to pursue this. You see, what grace causes us to do is to pursue holiness. And we must work simultaneously at putting off our old self when we come to Jesus and that we would pursue holiness and the characteristics of holiness in the new life that God has called us to. You see, one without the other is extremely ineffective. What happens for the Pharisees is they encountered God and they said, oh, well, God says I can't do this, and God says I can't do that, and God says I can't do that. And so they just started expanding the list more and more and more. And you may know people like that. Oh, you can't do that. Oh, you can't go to that store. Hey, you can't do, you can't see this. You can't say, you can't go to that place. And it's all of the, I can't. Everything is a don't. And there's a lot of churches that are that way. And Well, you can't come to our church because you don't have the right version of the Bible. You don't dress the right way. You don't sing the right songs. And it's all a don't, 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 right? You know some people like that. And so on the one hand, you have people who encounter godliness, holiness, and they say, no, 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 everything's a no. You know, I've said this before, but Casting Crowns, in one of their songs, they said that the lost world knows more of what we're against than what we're for. And so on the one hand, you've got the no crowd, but then on the other hand, there, there's also got to be the, the things that we say yes to, that we say that I am going to pursue holiness, I am going to pursue godliness. You see, some believers sen- seem to focus on putting off sinful practices, but they give little attention to what they're going to put on. Too often, the lives of such people become hard and brittle and self-righteous because they tend to equate godliness with a list of things that they do not do. That is not godliness. That is not freedom. On the other hand, you have believers who tend to focus on putting uh, certain positive traits such as love and compassion and kindness, which are really good things. But if you don't pay attention to the don'ts of Scripture, then you can become very careless in morality and in your ethics. That you say, oh, you know, I've got grace, so I can just do anything. And so we have to put off 
the things that are dragging us down, the sinfulness, but we also have to put on the things in which God has called us to. Oftentimes in the book of Ephesians, you see Paul say to walk, which requires effort, that he says that we would walk, that we would, those are the things that would be a part of the action of putting on godliness. And so what happens in the intersection of you and grace is that your perception that you no longer see your life as opportunities for personal satisfaction and pleasure of pursuing your own heart, but you began to see your life as an image bearer and you pursue the heart of God, right? And so that's how grace begins to change the perception of how we see ourselves. Number two, when our perception changed, our purpose changed. When our perception changed, our purpose changed. So when we encountered grace, the purpose of our life began to change. You see, the goal of God's curriculum, if you will, for our lives is for us to live a new kind of life. Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things become new. And so our purpose begins to change, that we begin to pursue the things that God has in store for us. And so it's, this is where discipline comes in. So the grace that brings salvation to us, it also disciplines us. It also disciplines us. In my D group, we, we've gone through uh, spiritual disciplines, and we've talked about how, you know, the, the different disciplines that uh, God has in store for us as we grow in sanctification. And so salvation brings this to us, and we can't have salvation without discipline. In other words, you can't just go out and, again, as we've established, do just whatever you want to do. That is, God never saves people and leaves them alone to continue in their immaturity and sinful lifestyle. Everyone that God saves, He disciplines. Because every one of us, there's something in your life, there's a lot of things in all of our lives, that's off track from where God wants it to be and intends for it to be. And how does He get us that way? He disciplines us to get us back to the way that He wants us to be, that He desires for us to be. Paul said in uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You've heard that before. That God will complete what He started in you. Well, what did He start in you? To change you, to sanctify you, to be in the image of His Son Jesus, right? And so that requires discipline for us. And so again, as our perception begins to change about ourselves, our purpose changes. And so what grace does then, it gives us a new purpose that we would be, as Paul says in, in verse 12, that we would live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Look at that, in the present age. So for my friends who believe that free grace, that God would, that once you get saved, that God does everything, that there's no effort of obedience on the believer's part. Well, why does Paul say then that we would be upright and godly in the present age, Right? Because if that were true, then because their belief system is that sanctification is eternity. But, but that's not what Paul's saying here. You see, he uses these words in chapter 1 and verse 8 on three different occasions. I think it's very fascinating that as you, as you study this, Paul uses the word be self-controlled. Verse 2, verse 5, and verse 6, Paul says to be self-controlled. Now, we could spend the rest of the night on self-control, right? 
on self-control because we live in a world where it's just, if it just feels good, then do it. Well, whatever you want to do, well, follow your heart, whatever you feel like doing, well, that's what you should do. That's not self-control. If you, if, imagine a world where everybody just did whatever they wanted to do. Imagine that world. And so Paul here in just this, uh, these uh, few short verses in this chapter has said three different times that we must have self-control. This is the core of the command that Paul is giving here. Self-control is a description. It is not an action. It is a description. And so as you think about self-control in your own life, it's not something that you say, I'm going to get better at self-control. You know how you get better at self-control? You start emptying yourself of yourself. That's how you get better at self-control, that you fill yourself with the Spirit of God and so that what comes out of your life is not more of Matt, but it's less of Matt. Because the more of Matt, there's the less of God, right? It's the same for you. The more that comes out that's you, that's self, the less there is of God. And so Paul is saying, look, you're, you're to be self-controlled. And so he gives this list to be godly, to be upright. Now, this list is not a list to be completed, but it is a lifestyle that we are to live. So when we say that we're self-controlled, hey, have you ever described somebody that way? Man, I really like Mark. He's really self-controlled. Right? Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? It's a lifestyle. It's something that is built over time, and, and we'll get to this as well in a second. But when you think about self-control, how do you exhibit self-control when you need self-control? I mean, think about it. If, no one is, if you don't have to restrain yourself in your flesh, have you ever really exhibited self-control? And when you don't restrain your flesh, your sin and your flesh is going to run rampant. And so for you to exhibit self-control, you have to encounter an opportunity to control yourself. You see, the majority, if not all of these actions that Paul is talking about, are rooted in the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, we're incapable of being self-controlled, upright, and holy. You can't do that on your own. You can't be who God wants you to be in being self, uh, self-controlled and upright and holy, apart from the infusion of the Spirit of God. And so you say to yourself, well, I, I, lose, I lose control of myself sometimes. Well, then you should question where the source of your control comes from. Is it your flesh or is it the Spirit? You see, the three words that Paul uses here, self-control, upright, and godly, they are considered by most Bible commentators to refer to actions with regard to oneself, one's neighbor, and to God. I talked about this about three weeks ago. He uses the same terminology uh, when we were in chapter 1. So just for review, again, self-control expresses self-restraint that we practice towards good and legitimate things of life as well as denying sin. So that we control ourselves. He, go, he talks about being upright. Being uh, ex, uh, with upright, he talks about uh, the expressing righteous conduct or right actions towards other people. Doing to them the golden rule, what we would have others do to us. That we would treat other people in an upright manner. And then lastly, as we talked about a few weeks ago, again, godliness having a regard for God's glory and God's will in every aspect of our life, doing everything out of reverence for God, that we would be godly in our lifestyles. And so as Paul gives this list, he's saying that we're not just to be people who avoid certain things or abstaining from certain things, 
but we don't actually ever do anything. What Paul is saying here is that grace is what compels our holiness. That because of what God has done for me, I'm compelled to live a life of uprightness, to live a life of godliness, to live a life that is self-controlled. And that's why Paul says that that is why the rescue of grace Require results in requirements, that, that because of the rescue of grace, that we are required to do things, that we're required to say no to ungodliness, that we're required to say no to worldly passions, and to say yes to being self-controlled, to be upright, and to be godly. And so that God calls Jesus to, to Himself, God calls us to Himself through Jesus and through grace, we receive salvation. Now, as we think about this mission, and Paul, he talks about this, these two appearings, all right? So, he says that, first of all, grace has appeared. Now, when you read the Gospels, what you read in the Gospels is a lot of confusion with the people that encountered Jesus. Why were they confused? Even all the way to the end, why were they confused? They were confused because they had a mission for Jesus, Right? They were expecting the Messiah to come and to set up what? Earthly kingship. And they thought that Jesus would come and he would establish his throne. This is, this is very clear on the first mission of Jesus, that he would establish his throne on earth. Right, That's what they thought. But that's not the mission of Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. And, and Paul says here that grace appeared. Why did grace appear? Well, grace appeared so that there would be salvation for all. Titus chapter 3, we'll get to later. He says this, when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So why did Jesus come? To reveal grace to us. He did not come to set up Messiah kingship. That is not what he came for, which the second part that we're getting to here is that it says waiting for our blessed hope, which is what? The second appearing. In the same verse, he says the appearing of the glory of our great God, uh, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the first mission of Jesus was not that he would come and establish his glory. That's what all the disciples wanted. Hey, Jesus, when you get on your throne, can I sit on the right and the left? Right? They wanted the glory. But Jesus says, no, you don't understand what I'm here for. I'm here for grace. I came to give grace, to show grace that people would have an opportunity to have a relationship with God. I did not come to show glory yet. That is not my first mission. And so the purpose then for us, as our perception of ourselves changes, our purpose then becomes what? It becomes sanctification or holiness. Because of the grace that we have encountered through Jesus. I think that's fascinating. That as you, as you study this appearing that Paul then, this all relates back to the gospel. That this appearing, that, that, look at the terminology, that grace has appeared bringing salvation for all people. That is the mission of Jesus. Everyone in the gospel kept saying, take the Romans over, Jesus. Take the Romans over. And Jesus said, that's not my mission. Now, there will be a take the Romans over Jesus mission, which we're about to get to. And so as our perception changes, it changes our purpose. Number three, then our focus, 
Our focus of our purpose gives us patience in the present. The purpose of our, we'll get there. I'm not sure what's happening, Scott, up there. The, the focus of our purpose gives us patience in the present. So he says that for this second appearance that he says here. Look what he says. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this purpose then allows us to have patience. Now, I'll be honest with you. If God came back right now, I would be okay with that. I would actually be super excited, and I wish it would have happened several hours ago, right? Actually, several years ago. But, you know, the sooner the better for me, okay? I know, oh, I, I, I want this to happen. Oh, I want this to happen. I'm good with it right now, okay? So why don't we just pause and ask God to come right now, right? And so the purpose, it gives us patience in the moment that we know that there will come a day that the appearing of Jesus, that the skies will split, the trumpet will sound, and Jesus Christ will come to receive those that are his own. We know that day is coming, and that will be the second coming, the appearing of Jesus Christ. So grace came. And that's what we all were able to have an opportunity to know Jesus, uh, God through Jesus. And then the second coming. And so because we know that that is coming, guess what we can do? We can wait. That's what Paul says, that we can wait, that we can have patience in the present. And so Paul says that in this grace, we're waiting. So we live between these two appearings, the, the grace of God, the appearance of the grace of God, which is Jesus, which is what Pastor Tony again preached Sunday morning, a person, that grace is a person. And then the second coming, the second appearing of Jesus Christ. And so the grace of God first came, then the glory of God. And so in this waiting, then we are to live a life in such a way that reflects the grace that we have received. We're to live a life in such a way that reflects the grace that we have received. You see, this grace in our own lives is to point to the second coming of Jesus, which ultimately will be the glory of God. And so what's happened in our lives should be a reflection of what God can do in the lives of other people. You see, grace doesn't just prepare us for the future, but it also shapes us for the present. You see, your life, my life, is an example of, of what God has done in our, in our lives and, and saving us and redeeming us. And I think this is where a lot of people get stuck. So hear me out here for a second. I think a lot of people get stuck between God's grace and His glory. Hear, hear me out. You've received God's grace, and you, you realize what you're realizing maybe is a better way to say it, what grace is, what God's done in your life. But there's still, for some people, that... that that, that holding back of, of giving, of dispensing grace to other people, but in living that grace in your own life, that, that the reality of grace has actually saved you, that it is unmerited favor, that you don't have to do anything else, that there are no requirements for salvation to retain it or to keep it, right? That, that God has saved you. I think a lot of people get stuck in the I received grace. It's just like the parable of the talents. And, you know, I got this talent, but I perceived that you were a hard bastard. And so I hid it so I could make sure that I gave it back to you when you got here. And I think a lot of people, they, they experience grace and then they hang on to it as though, is this really real? Is this going to last? It's just like going on vacation. And then you're like, 
it's only day two and I got two days left. You're like, I'm really not working today. Or, you know, this is really awesome, right? That we experience this and we say, is it, is it okay for me? Is it okay for me to give grace? I mean, I know I got it, but do I have enough to give some of that away? Right? And so we, I think some people get stuck here. That, and, and the way that we get stuck is that the grace of God is not on display for other people to see the grace of God in our lives. Does that make sense? That the glory of His grace is hidden in our lives. Yeah, that, that, that glory is not shining forth from what God has done in our life. Now, I think there's a few reasons for that. I think a few reasons, you know, I would say one reason is that you're ashamed of your past. That you would say, well, I don't want people to know what God saved me from. Because then they may see me differently. Well, then what you're doing is you're eliminating glory from what God saved you from. You're eliminating that. Or you may say, well, I don't want to give grace away because I'm going to need it because I'm the free grace person that, that I just think I can just keep taking grace, 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 grace because I'm, I'm not going to put forth any godliness, uh, you know, sanctification effort to be godly. And so I've got, to, I've got to hoard it. You remember, this is what Paul said, be self-controlled, be submissive, and have integrity. That's what Paul said. And so if we're going to do that, what we've got to do is we've got to take the focus off of ourselves and say, I'm not going to be stuck in just receivership, but I'm going to take grace and I'm going to dispense it. And in the dispensing of God's grace, it may be through declaring the grace that I received for myself, example, telling what God saved me from, or in dispensing it to others that I would show unmerited favor to someone who doesn't deserve it. That's how we display God's glory. Well, well how, how is that possible? Well, here's how it's possible. How, how do we do self-control? How do we display these traits? Well, these are traits that are only born through adversity. Next slide. These are only traits that are born through adversity. That when we, we look at these traits that, that God has in store for us, that we would display this grace, that we would be holy, that we would be upright, and through displaying of what God has saved us from. Well, the way that we do that is we have to encounter adversity, like I said, with self-control. It is in this adversity where the grace of God shines forth in my life. That people would see the exhibition of self-control or the exhibition of being upright. But you see, when we're stuck, the opportunity for grace never shines forth God's glory. Next blank on your handout. It never shines forth God's glory. Make no mistake about it. God doesn't need us to display His glory. Listen, the second coming of Jesus will in itself alone be very crystal clear, and it will be the most God-magnifying event known to man. He does not need me to do that. I get to do that. He does not need you to do that. You get to do that. Why do you think that God doesn't just rapture all people who place their faith in Jesus? Well, it's because, next blank, that we're all trophies. We're all trophies of His grace, and that displays God's glory to a lost world. It displays His glory. How in the world could God save him, right? How could God save her? How could I ever forgive that person for doing that to me? Listen, people have done things against you. People have done things against me, and I've forgiven them. I didn't want to forgive them. My flesh said, you should never forgive them. But the Spirit of God said, you better forgive them because you've been forgiven. And so guess what? I forgave them. 
I, I do not count that against them. I have a great relationship with those people. And the same thing is true about you is that you have the opportunity, I have the opportunity to have a great relationship with God the Father because of grace and He doesn't count those things against us. So these trophies of grace that God displays, it's all for His glory. So I like, I'm a do-it-yourselfer too, uh, to a fault sometimes. And so I have, uh, I had this, we were out and I have a, a boat that we bought several years ago. And so we were, uh, we were getting it ready for the season. And uh, so it started this little beeping noise. Well, I, my personality is that I want everything to be in order, right? I got, you know, I'm very structured. I want everything to be in order. So I'm like, I got to figure this out. I got, what, what in the world could this be? And so I'm trying to figure out, you know, why is it beeping? The computer's trying to tell me something. Well, they, they have this little connector. Your car has the same thing. There's a little connector, and you hook it up to a computer, the, you know, AutoZone, O'Reilly's, all those places, they'll do it for free. They'll hook it up to a connector, and you know what it'll do? It'll tell you everything that's happening under the hood. That display, that little display, will tell you everything that you need to know that's going on under the hood, so to speak. And as I thought about this display in God's glory, I thought about our lives, and I thought about the boat, your car, my car, all of our, you know, the display, this, this little diagnostic tool, that the display for you and me is our actions, that everything that we say, everything that we do, the place that we go, that's your display. And you know what that's displaying? It's displaying what's under the hood. Look, I can be upright for a season in your eyes, but it's not going to last long. I can be self-controlled for a season, but you put me under the cooker, and if I don't have the Spirit of God, I'm going to lose control. You're going to lose control. Because the display, what happens with the display? It tells the truth. And it tells everything that's happening underneath the hood. And so in our own lives, we say, you know, I want to live a life that, that is more holy. I want to live a life that's more upright. I want to live a life that's more self-controlled. Well, you know what you've got to do? You've got to fix what's under the hood. You've got to say, what's the root in my heart? Why am I acting the way that I'm acting? Why am I not giving grace to those that I should be giving grace to because I've been given grace? Why am I showing forgiveness to those that need to be forgiven or who have offended me? Because there's something wrong under the hood, that there's a beep going on in your life telling you something is wrong. Something is wrong. And this is why a lot of people get stuck is we're ignoring the beep, that we're not allowing, we're not getting close. Let's overuse the illustration. I'm not getting close enough to you for you to hear the alarms going off in my life, that you don't know enough about the, the warning systems in my life, Right? That my display may, for a short time, look okay, right? But when you hook it up to the tool, you realize, hang on a second, we got a problem. We got a problem. Now, it could be a major problem, right? You, you might need a new computer. You might, need to, you might need to get saved. Or it could be a simple problem, like, you know, thankfully I had a little wire that wasn't connected properly, right? could be something simple. But the display reveals the truth, the display reveals the truth. Well, why is it that, that we get stuck here? And Paul gives it here, and we're almost done. Why do we get stuck? The reason we get stuck is we don't like to wait. We don't want to wait. We want instant sanctification. He says that we're waiting for our blessed hope. We don't want to wait. Just like I told you, 
I would rather not wait for the second coming of Jesus. I want it right now, right? I don't want to wait. But in God's sovereignty, I'm, I'm still waiting. You're still waiting. And we don't like to wait. Because we want it instantly. We live in a drive-through society, and we want things now. Paul says that we're waiting for the appearing of the glory of Jesus. This means that it would show forth, it would manifest. The word here literally means an epiphany. That, that an epiphany would appear. In other words, just as grace appeared in your life, so will the second coming appear. The second coming of Christ, the appearing of God's glory. This is where Jesus establishes his throne. Now, don't miss this last part. The coming of the glory of God, the second coming of Jesus, is a threat to those who do not know him. It is a threat to those who do. Think about it. This is why the first coming of Jesus was not a threat. They wanted him to establish the throne. They wanted him to strike people dead, right? They wanted to, to, to take people out. But it was, Jesus did not come as a threat, as grace. He came as grace. The second coming of Jesus will not be that way. It will be a threat to those who do not know him. It is because of this grace, Paul says, that we are to be zealous for good works. Augustine once said that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so through our own lives, through grace, we are to glorify God through enjoying Him forever. Amen? So how do we respond to that? Well, Paul gives three things here at the end. I didn't want to leave them out because he's very specific and clear. So how do we respond to it? Well, number one, Number one, we declare the grace, we declare the grace that has rescued you. Or in other words, you make known what God has done in your life. Declare the grace. Number two, exhort a response from those you influence. In other words, encourage those that you influence. I was talking to one of our church members uh, the other day, and they were talking about work, and there were some coworkers, and they had an opportunity to share with their coworkers. And he said, I, I have an opportunity to encourage them with the gospel. Look, whether what they do with the gospel, not your responsibility. How they receive the gospel, your responsibility, right? That you share, that you encourage, you declare, you make known and encourage the gospel. So exhort a response from those that you influence. In other words, give a call to action, right? Give a call to action. And then number three, rebuke with intent, with the intent to bring in line with Jesus the grace that has appeared to us all. Or in other words, point out. You see, look, it's okay for you to stand up for something. It's okay. You don't have to be against something all the time. You can be for something all the time. So, and there's simple ways that you can do that. When, you, when you're communicating the things, and, and I've said this before, I think it's so important. The way that we talk about church sometimes communicates things that we don't get to do. Oh, I can't do that. I got to go to church or I have church. No, you get to come to church, right? And so it's just simple ways that we talk about that. Oh, no, I can't do that. But instead, we would say, you know what? Actually, here's what I do get to do, right? And start talking about, I mean, there are some people in this room that are experts at doing that. 
And so it's just a matter of simply saying, here's what God, the grace of God did in my life. That's it. It doesn't have to be some extravagant story. It's just, look, here's who I was. Here's what grace did in my life, and now this is who I am. Do I fail all the time? I do make a lot of mistakes. Am I the standard? No, but I'm trying, right? I'm being disciplined in godliness to be who God wants me to be. And the end result is that as we're waiting, that we're displaying God's glory. And that is, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the second coming. We're waiting for the second appearance of the glory of Jesus Christ. What a day that will be. Amen? Well, I hope you have gained something from tonight, been encouraged by what Paul has for us here. So let's pray.